Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Most people don't realize that cannabis is serious business that requires serious technology solutions. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group. We are seriously proud to provide technology and security systems that help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, I'm here to tell you that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis. sunstatetech.com cannabis. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop. Thank you for joining me. If you were with us last year, you might recall an interview with attorney Tom Dean about the Rodney Jones case, which had devastating implications for Arizona's medical marijuana program. In case you missed it, let me bring you up to speed. Rodney Jones was a card-carrying medical marijuana patient who was arrested in 2013 after a traffic stop when officers found him in possession of hashish, a cannabis derivative he had purchased legally at a licensed dispensary. A year later, after prosecutors sufficiently convinced a jury that the hashish in his possession was not marijuana as defined in the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act, but rather cannabis, which is illegal to possess or consume under Arizona criminal code, Jones was convicted of felony possession and sentenced to a mandatory minimum sentence of more than three years in state prison. He spent two and a half years of that term in prison before his appeal could be heard. And when appellate court justices ruled in favor of the prosecutors, they sent Rodney Jones back to prison to serve out the remainder of his sentence. This definitely was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was arrested in Yavapai County, jurisdiction of the infamous prosecutor, Sheila Polk, who is famous for her loud opposition to Arizona's medical marijuana program, and her prosecution of Rodney Jones was a huge win for her. The appellate court ruling essentially gutted protections for the vast majority of Arizona medical marijuana patients who rely on extracts for medical reasons, as most patients do prefer not to smoke their medicine. So despite the obvious voter intent of the measure, By interpreting the Medical Marijuana Act's definition of marijuana to include only dried, smokable leaves, all tinctures, resins, vape products, edibles, and topicals containing extracts were rendered illegal for patients to use. That changed last week with a resounding win in the Arizona Supreme Court, which reversed the appellate denial and exonerated Rodney Jones. This ruling determined that cannabis extracts and resins would now be deemed legal for qualified patients to possess and consume. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm very excited to say that the attorneys who were intimately involved in the Supreme Court case for Jones are here to discuss it. 
Rob Mandel is a seasoned appellate and trial court litigation lawyer and founding partner at Mandel Young, where he specializes in high-stakes commercial, constitutional, and public law disputes. He was the lead attorney arguing on behalf of Rodney Jones at the Arizona Supreme Court hearing. Attorney Gary Smith, also a member of the legal team, is a partner at Smith Sachs Kuzmich, where he specializes in cannabis law, and he also happens to be the president of the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association. Rob and Gary, I'm so glad that you're here to talk about this. I've been very excited to interview you about the Jones case, and I'm glad that we could finally do it. So thanks for being here. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. And uh, thank you, by the way, for being patient. I know you were wanting to get us on an interview during the pendency of the case, and we kept putting you off because the case was still pending. So we appreciate your patience as well. Well, you know what? I've already covered this on a couple of different interviews with a couple of different attorneys because I've just found it so astonishing that a card-carrying medical marijuana patient was arrested for carrying drugs that he purchased legally in a dispensary. I mean, that just goes so far beyond what seems normal to me. And how is Rodney doing right now? Well, uh, this is Robert speaking, and um, what I can say is that uh, Rodney is in really good spirits as a result of the decision, and I think he's really looking forward to getting his life back uh, because he has had to endure not only the two and a half years in county jail and then in the state prison, but, you know, he's thereafter had to serve two and a half years of probation and live with two felony convictions on his record uh, arising out of this case. And uh, that, that can be paralyzing for somebody who's looking for a job and wanting to advance their life. Well, absolutely. And by the way, congratulations on an incredible win. Well, thank you. I, our, our objective was to help a person in need. We, we, we didn't realize we were going to be making history, uh, but um, we, we'll take it. We're, we're delighted by the results. I can only imagine. And Robert, you were actually arguing the case in front of the Supreme Court in Arizona. Is that correct? I did, yes. Yeah. And did you also represent Rodney through the appellate court? No, Rodney had another attorney representing him at the Court of Appeals level, uh, as well as a couple attorneys, not at the same time, at the trial court level. And uh, it wasn't until the decision came down at the Court of Appeals that efforts were undertaken to find an attorney with appellate experience who could muster the time and energy needed to bring a case to the Arizona Supreme Court. And that's quite a process, I understand. How hard was it to convince them to actually hear the case? That's hard to say because, of course, you're never in the room with the justices as they're deliberating about whether to take a case. So you have to look to things like statistics in order to answer questions like that. And without digging too deep in the weeds, Um, I I think it's safe to say that the statistics show that the Supreme Court takes very, very few cases, and in the criminal sphere, even fewer. So the chances of having a decision by the Court of Appeals accepted for review by the Supreme Court is extremely
excruciatingly small. And this is Gary. I think also there was a little bit of what I'll call political weirdness that took place early on in the case relative to which state agency was actually going to assume responsibility for the appeal. The petition to the Supreme Court obviously originated with Rob Mandel filing a petition on Rodney's behalf, and then the case was taken up first by the Arizona Attorney General's office, who along the path uh, during the course of the petition handed it back to the Yavapai County Attorney's office. And I think it's, it's probably appropriate to actually give a little hat nod and, and an acknowledgement to the Arizona Attorney General's office uh, for a couple of things in that process, inclusive of which were that the Attorney General initially opposed the petition, but then reversed course and actually filed uh, a withdrawal of that opposition, indicating to the Supreme Court that even the Attorney General's office believed that this merited review and they expressly asked that it be reviewed. That was tremendous. And, and, and again, I want to acknowledge the Attorney General's office for doing that. Um, additionally, on my part of the case, I represented one of the amici parties, Will Humble, who's the former director of the Department of Health Services. And true with every amici party, you either need to get permission from all the litigants in the core case, or you need the Supreme Court to uh, grant you the right to participate. And here again, the Attorney General uh, very graciously consented to Director Humble's appearance, and thus uh, we entered an appearance and briefed Director Humble's issues. So in case you're wondering, uh, Gary mentioned the word amici, and what an amici is, is um, it's a Latin phrase. The phrase is actually amicus curiae, which means friend of the court. And so in this case, um, there were several friends of the court that filed briefs in support of uh, the legal arguments that we were making on behalf of Rodney. You read my mind because I was about to say that there were a number of rather prominent attorneys who wrote amicus briefs to the court. So thank you for clarifying that. And I mean, how active, Gary, was the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association. There's really nothing that the, the Bar Association did or, or does in that regard. Um, each amicus party or amici party independently does their own briefing. Um, in my, and again, in my instance, I, I did a brief for Will Humble. Um, the Cannabis Bar Association itself, though, didn't appear in the case. It was really just me in my separate professional capacity. Um, reason being, the Cannabis Bar Association is formed to be uh, an educational group, not a political advocacy group. And we talked about it amongst the board members of the Cannabis Bar Association. And without giving you too much glimpse inside, uh, I can tell you that there was unanimity of opinion on the board that Rodney's case was absolutely worthy and there was unanimity of opinion that the Court of Appeals' decision was the wrong one and it needed to be reviewed, uh, but we did all ultimately agree that the Bar Association had to stay neutral because that is its core function, is to remain neutral and just offer public education. Right. So that's that's interesting. And, 
with all bar associations, I mean, they really do have to stay rather impartial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, but the work that... I flesh that out a little bit more, Snowden, if I can. Yeah. The Cannabis Bar Association is open to any attorney in good standing in Arizona. We don't discriminate based on beliefs. In point of fact, uh, we have a variety of members who have a variety of opinions about cannabis. Uh, some folks stick to the position that it should be strictly medical. Some of our other folks think it should be uh, open to recreational. Other folks think it should just be sort of a libertarian free-for-all. Um, and I would be surprised, but I certainly welcome, we might have folks amongst us who are openly anti-cannabis. Um, we don't discriminate. We welcome all voices because we use the association as a bridge to help facilitate communication between those camps. Right. And how cooperative was the Yavapai County Prosecutor's Office in this appeal? I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that sort of tongue-in-cheek because I know how bitterly against cannabis that office happens to be. Some people in the office. Well, yeah, one in particular that I can think of. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Snowden, this is Rob. Once you're at the Supreme Court level, there really is very little interaction uh, between the opponents uh, in, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the proceeding itself. Uh, there are deadlines set. There are briefs that are filed on those deadlines. The only interaction that takes place is that each party has an obligation to serve <laughs> their papers on the other side. And so, there were no discussions other than perhaps a request here or there for an extension um, on a deadline. Uh, I think that the real fireworks take place at the trial court level. That's when you're going to find the telephone calls and the meetings between defense counsel and prosecutors uh, and hearings and so forth, where the sort of thing that you're alluding to will sort of ring uh, true. Yeah. Did you ever get the impression that the original prosecution of Rodney Jones was more of a political stunt? Well, um, you know, I, I, I try to stay away from sort of the policy discussions like that. But there is no question that the county prosecutor in Yavapai County has been the staunchest of opponents of the Medical Marijuana Act and does anything and everything within her power to impose limits on the act and the scope of the act through the judicial system. And so I'll leave it to others to decide whether it was a mere coincidence or intentional that the county attorney decided to bring was brought against somebody who obviously would never have the financial resources to mount a defense against unlimited power and resources of the government. And so I don't think that's a coincidence. And I guess the other thing that probably isn't a coincidence, but I'll let others decide, was the timing of the prosecution of Rodney Jones, because it was well within a few weeks of the decision by the county attorney in Maricopa County to not appeal the decision in the Xander Welton case, uh, which is an important case we'll be happy to talk about with you. It was well within 
uh, just a week or two of that decision that uh, the county prosecutor in Yavapai decided to dust off uh, her file and find a case that she could prosecute against somebody for the use of an extract or a product made with extract. And that was the case that was ultimately brought against Rodney Jones. Yeah. Do you mind if I flesh that out a little bit, Snowden? No, please do. So what Rob is alluding to, and he's trying to be so delicate and be nice to the Yavapai County Attorney's Office, I don't feel like I have to be that nice because uh, I don't directly represent Rodney. Uh, but I'll try to be nice. I'll try to be nice anyway. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> what, what Rob is alluding to is the year that Rodney got uh, originally arrested is not the year he got charged. There's a, a year between the date he got arrested and the date Rodney actually got charged. So what was happening in that between time? What was happening in that between time is there was a case down in Maricopa County involving uh, Xander Welton and his parents. Xander, uh, I think at the time of his case pending, was five years old and had some sort of a congenital medical condition that triggered something between like 20 and 30 grand mal seizures a day. And uh, Xander's parents had kind of exhausted the limits of Western medicine. Nothing really helped Xander. Then they discovered cannabis oil, which of course is an extract and it's at the epicenter of Rodney's case same as it was in Xander's case. And in that time frame, the Maricopa County attorney, Bill Montgomery, was making public grumblings that he didn't think any of these extracted products were legal. And of course, Xander's parents wanted to do anything possible to make Xander's life better, but they didn't want to do it at the price of going to prison or having Xander go to prison. That would have been catastrophic for the family. So they filed a civil lawsuit here in Maricopa County seeking uh, two things, declaratory relief and an injunction. And all they were asking was for the court to look at the Medical Marijuana Act and to declare thumbs up or thumbs down, are extracts part of the act? Yes or no? Binary question, very simple. Um, and that's the same question raised in Rodney's case. Now, as it turns out, uh, Superior Court Judge Catherine Cooper uh, ruled on Xander's case in favor of extracts, and she wrote a really well-reasoned, well-worded opinion that walked through the analysis and came to the conclusion. And the Maricopa County Attorney's Office opted not to appeal it, which, granted, trial courts are not binding rulings statewide. They're only binding on the parties to the case. Um, but the appearance was that the matter was settled, the question was done, everybody was happy with the outcome, except for the Avapai County Attorney's Office, who, had they chosen to, could actually have taken up the appellate rights in Xander's case and fought it. Instead of doing that, they wanted to start over with a fresh, uh, I want to use the word victim, but that's not fair, uh, a fresh uh, charge against a fresh party. So rather than beat up on the poor, sick five-year-old, they, uh, they selected Rodney. And all too coincidental, within mere days of the appeals time running on Xander Welton's case, the Avapai County Attorney's Office formally charged Rodney. Now, what makes this kind of sickening is the fact that Again, Xander's case was available to the Avapai County Attorney's Office. They could have appealed the same question in that case where literally 
no one was threatened with jail. It was a civil lawsuit that asked the same question. There would have been no penalty or punishment to anybody, no matter which way that case ended. But instead, the Yavapai County Attorney's Office chose, uh, as it turned out, to wrongly charge an innocent man. And they put him through hell, and Rodney sat in jail for two and a half years when he never had to. None of this ever had to happen. It really just makes my blood boil to hear that. And I didn't realize that detail, so thank you for clarifying it. I was aware of the Welton case as it happened. And, you know, I just chalked it up to the fact that there was a much nicer prosecutorial body in Maricopa County when it came to the medical marijuana law here in Arizona. But yeah, then it, you're, you're right on that, Snowden. And, and to that point, I probably should say something nice about Bill Montgomery, too, who's the Maricopa County attorney. Um, for people who, who know, uh, Bill Montgomery is usually vociferously anti-marijuana. Um, but in the Xander Welton case, you know, he, he, he took a shot at the arguments. The court told him he was wrong. And to his credit, he accepted that and, and didn't try to press it forward. He certainly could have as well. Uh, but he didn't. So I wanted to say something nice because it's deserved. Well, yeah. And Bill Montgomery has actually shown himself to be a lot more compassionate, a little more reasonable, I should say, when it comes to hearing these issues. And I think that he realizes, too, that the constituents in Maricopa County are going to be a lot more sympathetic to a case like that as well. And he wants to be sensitive to what they'd like, because that's an elected office, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. You know, he is strongly opinionated, but he's also well-educated. Um, and that's to his credit. Right. And then when you look at Sheila Polk's office, and, well, if you look at Sheila Polk, I should be fair to her office, she has been so outspoken on a political level, and I know you probably won't want to comment on this, but I'm a journalist and I can. She's accepted a lot of campaign dollars from people who are vehemently opposed to the medical marijuana law here. And also... You're talking about the half million dollars she took from incest? Oh, yeah. Or really, to be fair, an organization she is affiliated with. I should not say that Sheila took that money. She did not. Well, it's well documented that INCES has been actively supporting the PACs that are against the cannabis laws just about everywhere, I think. And there's no secret in that. And also, there's no secret that Sheila Polk has also accepted monies from the alcohol industry, which at first was quite opposed to this as well. Mm -hmm. But her op-eds have been telling and unreasonable. And the other thing too, Rodney Jones definitely was going to be a lot less sympathetic and your word victim, I would, (laughs) I think he was victimized terribly in all of this, but he was definitely a less sympathetic character in her eyes than a five-year-old with, you know, seizures or- The the optics on it are, are totally distinct. I mean, you know, who wants to be perceived as beating up on a, terribly ill five-year-old. Nobody wins that PR battle, ever. And Xander, by the way, did pass away, ultimately. Yeah, that was quite sad. Uh, I was grieving for his family when I learned about that. And to that point, his his mother did uh, appear as an amici in this case as well. So she also deserves an, an acknowledgement. That's really great to hear. And there was also a case in Penal County, if I'm not mistaken, that was very similar to both of these issues. 
And court actually found in his favor, but it wasn't necessarily about the extracts. Do you know what I'm talking about? And is this something you can elaborate on or not? Um, I have heard of probably one to two dozen uh, other people being charged for possession of extracts. And by people, I mean AMA patients specifically. Um, but from what we have been told, uh, and Rob and I are kind of plugged into various networks in the marijuana community here, um, what we were told is that the prosecuting agencies and police agencies were kind of just sitting on those files, waiting to see what the Supreme Court would do. So as of Tuesday morning, there are probably two dozen people who woke up that morning not knowing they dodged a huge bullet. Yeah, Life for them could have been drastically different come Wednesday morning. Yeah, that's for sure. Because had the decision gone the other way, and this is Rob speaking, I think the floodgates would have been opened and everybody who uh, needs and acquires uh, products made from extracts, whether that be uh, vape pens or uh, any of the other numerous products, would have been targeted uh, relentlessly by prosecutors in several of the counties. Oh, yeah. So uh, state prosecutors, I should say. So, um, And God only knows what would have happened to the dispensaries. Well, oh, the dispensaries would have been the next target, I imagine. You know, there again, uh, I think that the idea on the part of the prosecutors was we want to go after those who have the fewest resources. So let's go after somebody like Rodney. But had this decision gone the other way, I think it would have been not only the patients being targeted, but the dispensaries, dispensary agents, caregivers, and let's not forget the physicians. I think everybody would have been a target at that point. Uh, so in that respect, I think you know it's sort of an epic win for the patients and the industry. You know, it's interesting that the AMMA was passed with a resounding approval, as, as I recall, in 2012. And it just seems so strange to me that for the last, what well, has been seven years now, you, there are so many factions that have been fighting against it. And yet it's bringing in a lot of money to the state. So all seems very unjust. <laughs> and, and also with that, it also brings a reduction in opioid deaths it brings a reduction in crime. Uh, it brings greater health to the two, well, almost 200,000 patients now who qualify medically for the program. And let me underscore that for a moment. Uh, and this sort of rips a little bit off of the, the thing we were discussing about the Avapai County Attorney's Office. Uh, there are still people out there who don't acknowledge or believe that cannabis is medicine. Um, but if you look back at human history, and I literally mean all of human history, back to <laughs> its first recordings, this species we call humans have been alongside this species called cannabis the entire time. And there's strong archaeological evidence to demonstrate that cannabis was probably the first, if not amongst the top three first crops human beings ever learned to cultivate. Um, there's archaeological evidence of it uh, in, in the Fertile Crescent over in the Middle East. Uh, you will see reference to this throughout Egyptian uh, archaeology. You can look throughout all uh, countries and time. Chinese medicine has uh, cannabis in it. There are uh, South and Central American Indian tribes that have uh, some cannabis in it. Uh, there's 
areas in African history that have cannabis in it, and it has always historically been used as medicine. This notion of a recreational thing or a recreational bad-for-you drug is only the child of recent propaganda with no science behind it. So it's not like we were establishing for the first time that this stuff was medicine. Far from it. We were reestablishing that it has always been medicine. Gary's pretty smart, Snowden, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> well, I already knew that. <laughs> I'm <Gary> proud. And... <laughs> well, she should be. I mean, look what you're accomplishing these days. It's amazing. And I don't know your mother, but thank you to her for all the work that you're doing. Well, all I hear are things like, oh, my God, you're a pot lawyer. So, yeah, there's that. <laughs> That's true. But my mom's proud too. She's been sending, <laughs> she's been sending little snippets of my interviews all up to all of her friends. Uh, but she lives in Colorado, so <laughs> you know. Well, so it's a lot more socially acceptable. <laughs> yeah, uh, about four or five weeks ago, I I actually did an episode on that very topic. You know, in case anybody wants to check it out on thecannabisreporter.com, it's called "New Wisdom About Ancient Cannabis Informs Modern Medicine." Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Right. It's absolutely true. But, you know, I mean, there's in almost, think of all of the public policy issues that are um, hot today in which one side, because they're so obsessed with their position, is willing to completely ignore the evidence and the facts, you know? And this is just one of, of several. Um, I mean, we saw it in the briefing in this case where assertions were being made totally out of the blue, almost like you were watching the movie Reefer Madness uh, with citations to uh, documents, uh, to research that doesn't exist and to research that doesn't say what the briefing said it said, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Um, All of which had to be thoroughly debunked in this case by several of the amicus groups and of course, by myself in in the briefing we did for Rodney. And uh, I think that, you know, collectively, we were successful in educating the justices about um, the evidence that, you know, contradicts these wild assertions and that demonstrates the the therapeutic and palliative benefits uh, that the medicines of the plant offer to so many people. You know, the... Arizona state legislature, which never agrees on anything, voted almost unanimously to pass a hemp bill. And it was vetoed by Governor Ducey. And I I found it astonishing that he would veto anything that had that much consensus because the parties are so divided, especially in the state. So it was really interesting and it was really quite heartening. They're finally opening up that market here because hemp has been used throughout history for everything. And, you know, oil changed the face of our earth, literally. And had it not been for the discovery of, you know, that black gold in the ground, hemp would have been our main resource for everything from biofuel to plastics and and composites. So, oh, you're 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 absolutely right, Snowden. Um, you know, most people don't know this, but Henry Ford wanted his vehicles to operate off of hemp-derived biodiesels. Oh, he yeah. lost the argument because the 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 pressures of the oil industrialists were too great. But contemplate what 
geopolitics would look like today had Henry Ford won that argument. You, you right. wouldn't have even a fraction of the miasma that is the Middle East. And also, we probably wouldn't even have the phrase climate change in popular vocabulary. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Critical and massive. Yeah, it's really sad. And it, and also, if it hadn't been for the petrochemical industry or for Anslinger or for Randolph Hearst, who had these forests that he wanted to chop down in the Carolinas, and his good friend DuPont had the chemical to mulch it into paper, and he wouldn't have to pay the hemp farmers anymore. It was, it, it's quite sad. Oh, yeah. And a uh, hat tip to that as well is um, the deep racism yeah. that is behind the anti-cannabis movement. You know, you talk about Hearst's forests in, in the Carolinas, uh, never mind those. He had massive timber holdings in Mexico, and uh, they were seized by the Mexican government, which in turn uh, set Hearst loose on the United States with a wave of propaganda in his newspapers that was anti-Mexican. Wow. And associated cannabis with Mexicans. And this is, in fact, where the popular word marijuana comes from. Uh, most folks don't realize it's a slang word. It's a negative word. Yeah. It's a derogatory word. Yeah. And it got propagandized courtesy of Hearst, uh, which in part is why you know, we mentioned the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association earlier. I'm one of the founding directors. We intentionally chose to call it the Cannabis Bar Association not the marijuana bar association because we wanted to take the word back. Uh, we didn't want to use the the slang derogatory racist laden word in this new age of enlightenment. What he said. Yeah. <laughs> I have to tell you, I consider myself pretty well read on cannabis history and and all things cannabis. I'm obsessed with it, actually. And I have to say thank you so much. You just educated me on something that I did not realize and a light bulb went off. I've covered the Reefer Madness campaign ad nauseum on this show. I talk about it a lot because you're right. That is, it, it started the racism, but I had no idea why they were targeting the Mexican farm workers. And to know that he actually had it in for the Mexican government. Wow, that makes sense. So thank you for thank you for sharing that. I, yeah. it's, it's rare that I can learn something like that. That's so profound. So, wow. I'm not just the president of the Cannabis Bar Association. I'm also a client. <laughs> well, there you go. That's really fascinating. I'm going to look into that more. Yeah. And then bringing it back to the racism, you know, four times more people of color are arrested and incarcerated than, you know, the same number of, of Caucasian people who are users of cannabis. And so the racism is so blatant and obvious in the way that it's impacted our criminal justice system and everything else. And when we were talking about Rodney Jones in the beginning, that was running through my head because I wonder if the same thing would have happened to him had he been a Caucasian college. White boy? Yeah, with parents who worked in the Yavapai County prosecutor's office. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I hate to make light of it. I suppose when you do your Sheila Polk interview, you might pose that question to her. I have a funny feeling that she would never agree to be interviewed by me. <laughs> um, although you never know. Maybe she'll have a change of heart one day and 
you know, perhaps one of the cannabis producers donates to her campaign and she'll come on my show and explain why she's changed her tune. I don't know. <laughs> it's just <laughs> all things are possible in this if, industry. If it would make her more comfortable, Rob and I are willing to go on with her if, if she needs company to feel comfortable. Um, <laughs> you know, if I ever do invite her for an interview, I will certainly let her know. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, I believe in my heart that racism did play a role in the Rodney Jones case, although maybe not overtly. And like I said in the beginning, what he's been through, I just can't even imagine. I mean, an otherwise law-abiding citizen who spent the money to get his medical marijuana card and went to a dispensary and instead of going on the street to buy the concentrates and hashish that he had on his possession at the time, it's so unjust what happened to him. And I'm really heartened to know that the Supreme Court actually ruled in his favor, but this is just, and and like you were saying too, the impact on the industry would have been just so devastating. Let me ask you this, Gary, yeah. I'm just wondering, with the industry being so dependent on the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act, right, when a ruling like this came in, and almost none of the dispensaries took all of their concentrates off the shelf, was there a legal reason that it was okay for them not to do that? Or was everybody just risking that if they all act en masse, that they're not all going to be arrested at once? Uh, that is a great question. And I get asked that one a lot. The short answer is the Court of Appeals' decision at that time and all the way through Tuesday until the Supreme Court said otherwise. That decision was law of the land for Arizona, meaning that no patient, no agent, no dispensary could use, possess, consume, manufacture, or sell extracts, period, no qualifiers. Uh, so there was no law or, or color of law, to my knowledge, that would have permitted the dispensaries to stay the course by manufacturing and selling those products. So why did they do it? I think it was... 50%, they had a strong good faith belief that um, this would eventually correct itself at the Supreme Court. Uh, and it was 50% incredibly high risk tolerant people. Um, but, you know, none of it was legally sanctioned. They just assumed a risk and uh, they were very fortunate that it worked out. Um, and as a lawyer who has dispensaries as clients, as well as other industry participants, I can tell you, I was having a small ulcer over the problem over the last year. Um, so the manufacturer of Tums and Rolades made a lot of money off of me while I worried about this. <laughs> Just... But all lawyers have Tums and Rolades at their side. So that's not that unusual. Um, we just live with that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, it, this was a, um, a nerve wracking year uh, for lots of different constituencies yeah. um, as a result of that decision. But we should be grateful that the system was able to correct itself so quickly. The oral argument was less than a year after that decision came down. And the decision from the Supreme Court was less than a year. That's pretty quick justice in today's judicial system. That, that's a quick turnaround. Uh, and so we're, I think we're all very fortunate. Yeah. And, and it's also worth pointing out, we got a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court. There wasn't a single justice who disagreed. That's right. That's actually pretty impressive that it was unanimous. 
And, you know, this reminds me also around the a little bit after that appellate court decision came out was when the FDA started making noises about the fact that CBD had been assigned uh, a numerical code in Schedule 1 the year before. It obviously was a coincidence because they have nothing to do with this. But in California, the Department of Health and Human Services actually banned hemp CBD as a food additive because of the noises being made by the FDA. And I found that really interesting, the, the timing of that appellate court decision sort of empowered or emboldened the FDA to jump on their new authority under the Farm Act, which was passed at the end of 2018, legalizing hemp nationwide. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there was this letter. So now in a similar situation, almost everyone is still selling their CBD throughout the country. A lot of people can get it online and a lot of people can get it mailed from state to state. And yet the FDA has stated in no uncertain terms that they're operating illegally, that the transfer of any hemp-derived CBD between states is, is a violation of federal law. And we're hoping that the States Act or one of the other pieces of legislation at the federal level will kind of correct this because, I mean, seriously, um, I can understand them not approving of labeling claims. And I mean, people who sell vitamin C go through the same thing. But if they're really concerned about the molecule CBD because of the approval of a drug that contains CBD, then they should also remove echinacea and chocolate from the shelves of every grocery store because they contain the molecule CBD as well. Right. Yeah, it's it's complicated as Hal Snowden, and you have correctly identified the second source of my ulcer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, this whole CBD question mark is the next undiscovered country in this crazy world we call marijuana land. And you're right, the Farm Bill from 2018 gave us nationally uh, legal hemp, but in turn didn't solve any of the CBD questions. That's going to have to rest in part with the FDA and in part with Congress. If Congress doesn't enact any new laws to address this at all, it's definitely going to fall to the Food and Drug Administration's regulatory oversight and control. Uh, the FDA has already made it crystal clear because they've issued written uh, letters to this effect, that if you're making any sort of health claim or infusing CBD into any edible product, be it for human or animals, uh, you're absolutely subject to FDA oversight and approval. Um, and that is going to be an ongoing problem. Now, some folks are responding to this by just selling CBD isolate and not saying anything about it other than this is a bottle of CBD isolate. That might be the temporary solution, but it's not a long-term solution. Yeah, and I also happen to know of one specific raid on a general store that happened to sell CBD-infused pet treats, and they had some candy bars. There were no claims on the label. They raided it. They took all the pet food, and they took all of the chocolate bars <laughs> and left the store owner going, but wait, I just paid for all of that. Yeah, it's... if they had not put it inside of food products, they might possibly have avoided that moment. 
Um, and for the sake of your listeners, because I know people get emotionally very polarized about uh, the question of these products, we all have to remember there was a point in U.S. history where there were no regulations whatsoever. Uh, and these were the days of, of the proverbial snake oil salesman selling what was mostly alcohol in mislabeled bottles off of the back of a wagon to a you know, group of uh, townsfolk who would just wander over and listen to this guy spew his lies and take their money. And oftentimes, the products that people purchased either didn't do what they claimed to do, uh, or worse, were toxic and lethal. So I don't suspect anybody wants to go back to that time. It, It was a miserable time to live in. And, you know, like when people talk about uh, you know, make America great again, and they want to go back in history. I mean, you want to go back to that? Have at it, buddy. Leave everybody else here where we are. So to that extent, yeah, you know, I know we all have a, a warm, fuzzy spot in our hearts for anything cannabis, but we do have to acknowledge that it does definitely fall within this same group of things that people consume and affects their bodies. And I, I think that there's probably a reasonable balance point between uh, safe regulation that mandates things like manufacturers not lie about the products, uh, maybe have manufacturers, if they're going to do testing, report those results, or maybe even require testing. Speaking of, we do have a new testing bill in Arizona for marijuana, uh, and it passed. But this is going to all unfold in front of our very eyes over the next few years. Uh, I surmise we first have to cycle through the current presidential administration and get on the other side of it, but I think once we're there, this is all going to come to a fore, and a solution that is sensible and reasonable will emerge from it. I think you're right about that, and yeah, I look forward to that day, to be honest. It's pretty frustrating. I was just in Washington, D.C. for the first Cannabis Caucus to be held at the U.S. Capitol building. And I had an opportunity to speak with a lot of the Congress people who are supporting some of these bills. And there seems to be some pretty heavyweight support for this. And when you consider that a lot of very, very conservative people are now on board with the cannabis movement, like, for instance, the former Speaker of the House, John Boehner, is now in the cannabis industry himself and advocating for it, along with all the rest of us who would really like to see this movement succeed. So I just hope that the federal agencies will get out of the way. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's pretty insane. So what else is coming down the pike legally that we should know about? I know that there's the legislation, recent legislation, that's going to correct some things in the Arizona legislature. But what about any legal cases pending that might affect the industry? Um, hmm, industry-wide, Rob, what do you think? Right now, the only case I've heard that might be percolating up is one that involves whether um, an individual patient whether the immunity that the act provides for the manufacture of medical marijuana products extends to the patient, him or herself, such that, you know, uh, making something at home, for example, um, is whether the question is whether that would be immune. I think that uh, this decision actually answers that question, uh, the, the, the Jones decision. I think the court makes it very clear by going to the definition of medical use 
and pointing out the term manufacture that patients, caregivers, and uh, all other participants of the industry can manufacture products made with extract. So, uh, but, I, but I can see that issue percolating up and I, I, I've heard through the grapevine that it, that it might do so pretty soon. And um, yeah, we've won the dispensary brownie yeah. rights. Now we have to win the home brownie rights. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, we're ready. Um, I, I welcome the next challenging uh, cannabis case that needs to go up to, on appeal because uh, you know, one, of the, one of the nice byproducts of handling a case where you have to absorb yourself in an entirely new industry and an entirely new subject matter is that you become an expert in it. Uh, and so we're, we're totally ready for the next one. And that's a good point, too, about the home remedies, because there are a number of patients who like to just prepare their own tinctures. Of course, and, and indeed, every patient is preparing their own extract, because at the end of the day, you're, you're extracting the resin by smoking it, you're extracting the resin by employing any of the other methods that are used to create these products, you're always extracting the resin. And if you're not extracting the resin, you're not consuming the medicinal component of the plant. So you're kind of wasting your time. Uh, and so it's, it, it's sort of an absurd distinction. Uh, and uh, that's what the voters intended this act to do was to bring the medicine to the patients without their having to fear state criminal prosecution. Uh, so um, it seems to me like the answer to these questions is very clear. The act immunizes it. Yeah, or it should. And and the prosecutors should should realize that. And, you know, voter intent is so important. And that's why it was so counterintuitive that Rodney Jones lost his appeal. It made no sense to me. Yeah. Another thing, Snowden, that might come to the fore in the next year or two, if you read the Medical Marijuana Act statutes, there's a prohibition against public smoking. So I can't be sitting on a public bus and just light up a joint. But the word smoke is what literally appears in the text of the statute. What about vaping? That's technically not smoke. It's definitionally not smoke, um, but nobody yet that I'm aware of has been arrested, tried, and convicted for vaping in public. Um, but I rather suspect we're going to see that case come up in the next 12 months. I wouldn't be shocked. That's a good point. I can see that easily happening, mm -hmm. and um, I think that a literal interpretation of the act immunizes vaping in public. And so uh, I can see that issue coming up for sure in another attempt by prosecutors to limit the scope of the act's protections. So stay tuned for that, for sure. Yeah. Another interesting, a little bit deeper in the weeds, no pun intended, is that people need to recognize that the immunity that the act confers is not just an immunity from prosecution, but it's an immunity from arrest. And um, so, indeed, what this act really means is that somebody who has a medical marijuana card, I'm speaking just to the patients at this point, cannot even be arrested. And that is not something I believe the police or the prosecutors are actually honoring. 
in the act itself. Um, and I can see a case arising about whether or not the arrest of a patient in and of itself is a violation of the act. That's what I'd like to handle, because I think that you have to take the act by its plain terms, and it clearly does not merely immunize prosecution and incarceration. It, it also immunizes uh, you from an arrest. I think that's a very important point that will come up soon. Yeah, you never had the, the exciting pleasure of being arrested, which I haven't, so I'm not speaking from experience, but I do understand it's not pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make it up to someone who spent two and a half years in jail and has had to go see a parole officer or whatever he's had to do for the rest of the time and go through the expense of a trial like this? I mean, how how do you make it up to someone for such an egregious, it seems like an abusive prosecution. And especially if you do go back and you look at the voter intent of passing this measure and the protections that act should have provided to him, but ultimately failed to provide to him. So I wonder if there will be any reparations for him now that he's succeeded in the final Supreme Court decision here. Um, this is Gary. I'll let Rob answer that because Rodney is uh, Rob's client. But I will say, as preface, how do you give somebody two and a half years of their life back? You know, assuming any remedies available, how does somebody get more time? I'm not aware of a, a method to solve that. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, it's priceless. You can't replace it. It's gone. So, Rob, what do you think? Well, um, what I can say at this point is that no decisions have been made, uh, but the question you're posing is being reviewed. And I'll point out that just the, the one thing that I can say at this point is that there is a uh, United States Supreme Court case of recent vintage that holds that the state is responsible for reimbursing all expenses. In other words, any restitution, fees, or fines that a defendant who has been exonerated had incurred as a result of the conviction. So there is U.S. Supreme Court precedent for getting those types of things refunded. And um, all I can say at this point is stay tuned for more news. Well, I look forward to hearing about that. And God bless Rodney Jones. Yeah. <laughs> We're still absorbing the opinion. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're still in week one. And it's, yeah, uh, exactly. It's a nice day to be alive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can only imagine how emotionally impactful that decision was for Rodney Jones in a good way. But at the same time, it's so bittersweet. You know, it's like, well, see, I told you so. I should never have been incarcerated, you know, and... Sure, I'd love yeah. to I'd love to speak with him at some point on or off the record just to hear his thoughts on this. So let me know if he's ever willing to, you know, even just provide a quote for an article because this is just such an important issue and it's part and parcel of just solving, you know, this mass incarceration problem that we have. But I'd love to hear from him at some point if he's ever willing to speak with me about this and I'd actually love to have him on the show. So please, you know, let him know that. We will well, certainly let him know. Oh, sure. So I'm getting a signal that we need to start wrapping this up. But 
Is there anything else that either of you would like to let our audiences know? Rob, let's start with you. All I want to say really is uh, I want to extend a, a huge thank you to the community for all of the support of uh, our efforts to uh, obtain justice for Rodney. I mean, everybody in all segments of the industry have been so supportive, as well as, of course, the patient population. So we're just delighted we were able to do something good uh, for Arizona and for those who need these medicines. Um, And uh, uh, we're there for you if you need us. Well, thank you for that. It was absolutely a sweet victory. And yeah, Gary, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So my, my parting thoughts are, are this. It's not often in a lawyer's career that we get to take on cases that impact huge populations. In this instance, this case affected literally every Arizonan, whether or not you were participating in AMA. Um, that doesn't happen a lot. So I, I feel really lucky and, and blessed to have had the opportunity uh, to be on the case and to do some public good. Uh, so that, that's just a nice shot in the arm for my own little uh, ego. Lessons <laughs> um, I hope people take away from this. One, don't forget that Rodney Jones sat in a jail for two and a half years for a crime he never committed. Um, I, I know that message gets lost a lot and it irks me to no end. Rodney genuinely suffered. He shouldn't have been in that position and it wasn't his fault. So I hope everybody remembers Rodney. Um, That's point number one. Point number two is the Supreme Court taught everybody an important civics lesson in this case, and I hope that doesn't get lost on on the population either. Um, The Supreme Court took to heart quite seriously uh, the notions of justice that go behind not merely the, the charge in Rodney's case, but more importantly, the will of the voters, because the Medical Marijuana Act exists by virtue of a proposition It was Proposition 203. This didn't originate in our legislature. And the Supreme Court could have, you know, done something other than what they did. Uh, But they ruled appropriately, and their opinion tells us quite clearly they looked very hard at what did the voters ask for when they voted for this, because they're entitled to get what they voted for. And the Supreme Court holds that. Uh, And that's critical. And, of course, that leads to my final and third point, which is this. The ability to enjoy or participate in any aspect of medical marijuana right now isn't born by virtue of any rights that you can go to the U.S. Constitution and pull out and point at, although you should. And oh, by the way, the Constitution is printed on hemp paper. These are privileges that come to us by virtue of our enactment of our own statutes. We're a nation that is designed and built upon a sense of self-regulation. We don't have kings. We don't have monarchs. We don't have despots. We're a people that rule ourselves, and we have to be open-minded and willing to listen and be smart about how we establish policy and and what the reasons are behind it and how we effectuate it. And we have an opportunity staring us in the face to open up a whole new generation to a whole new way of thinking in a much better way that's kinder to one another, that's gentler to one another, and embraces all the things that make the United States great. Very good points. 
Yeah, very good points. Um, you know, it's really interesting. If people haven't read the Constitution, actually, the repeal of Prohibition, Amendment 21, actually made it a right to consume alcohol. And I often wonder if a repeal of Prohibition isn't necessary in Congress, you know, and it's something that I'd like to push for eventually. You know, and if there ever is a constitutional convention, <laughs> I think that this is an issue that should be addressed. And it's a plant. We have the right to consume vitamin C. So why shouldn't we have the right to consume another molecule that's absolutely harmless? And OK, maybe it inebriates people, but so does alcohol. And alcohol is a boatload more dangerous than cannabis ever will be. So, of course, so, there's good cause for it. Yeah. Well, I am really grateful to both of you for sharing your insights. This has been a great conversation, and I'd love to have you both back on at some point. Congratulations again on your incredible victory. I'm very grateful for what you've done for him because it represents what is possible for all patients who can now sort of breathe a sigh of relief that this history may not repeat itself for them. So it's really great news on all fronts. So thank you both so, so much. Thank you for having us on your show today. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely welcome, Snowden. And, and we agree. We hope there's never another Rodney. But if there is, Rob and I are here, ready, willing, and able to help. Well, thank you for that. Thanks so much. When or if you want us again, just let me know. I will. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you both. Okay. Well, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guests, Rob Mandel and Gary Smith, for sharing their insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that they're doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode, and that's where you'll find their bios along with links to their websites. We have so many people to thank. First and foremost, I'd like to express our gratitude to our radio partners, Sunstate Technology and Canosphere Biotech. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank my production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show and our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for broadcasting our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. When you think of chips relative to cannabis, microchips may not come to mind. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group here to tell you that our chips help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, Sunstate proudly serves the technology needs of the cannabis industry. You know that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis.